Oh Lord, we uh, come to you asking that you would speak as you have in the reading of your word. May you speak in the preaching of your word. Oh Lord, that we would hear from heaven. You have said that if we lack wisdom, we should ask, and so we do. May your spirit work now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I often warn of the dangers of technology. I've used illustrations of the dangers of phones or the different apps connected to them. I've warned of the dangers of Instagram, all of the documented things that as technology rises, so does the suicide rate. But today I want to begin with a benefit connected to technology. No, not the ease of use, not the increase in leisure. No, I want to talk about the benefit of all of the cameras and GoPros and dash cams that record for us the folly of being a criminal. I love it. I love those videos where you get to see, the world calls it instant karma. It's not, but I love being able to see the documented proof of the scriptures. That the way of the fool arrives at a bad end. I love the one where the guy goes to rob the bank. It's like a Friday afternoon or whatever. And he's obviously amped because he's about to commit a massive felony. He goes up and he slides the note into the teller, not fully around, aware of his kind of situational awareness of surroundings and has forgot to kind of pay attention to the fact that it's payday for the police force and they're right behind him when he starts it. <laughs> There's one last month that I I think is probably my favorite one of all time. It's from a gas station, and they have cameras everywhere, so you get to see the thing play out from about 14 different angles. It's a young couple, and they try to rob the gas station, and the, the story starts when the police show up. And the police apprehend both of them kind of right there in front of the cash register, and both of them resist arrest and and really do an excellent job of it. I mean, like, you really have to applaud them for the vigor with which they resist arrest. The young man actually gets his shirt torn off, so the whole thing happens with his pants almost about to fall off. It's just fantastic uh, as he and his girlfriend or wife, I don't know, uh, proceed to kind of try to get away. It's fantastic. He causes a trouble. He ends up sneaking to the back, somehow getting away from the police while she's running interference. He gets to the back as the police come. He starts assaulting them with bags of chips. While he's assaulting them with bags of chips, she goes running into the back with the bag of money. I can only assume is what it is. Until they tase the young man, which he somehow still manages to recover from and makes it out the front door before they tase him again. The highlight comes, though, when she gets to the back door. Finds it's locked against all fire code. I have no idea how they're not in trouble for that. And proceeds to think her best solution is to try to hide in the dropped ceiling. She throws the bag of money up there and proceeds to crawl through the dropped ceiling toward the front door. Which, if you know anything about dropped ceilings, you know that most of them are not designed to handle the weight of a human body. 
at which point she falls through the ceiling at the police officer's feet, completely (laughs) confused as to what has happened. It's comedic gold. I mean, it's about six minutes of just, I'm like wiping my eyes, I'm laughing, because it's the scriptures perfectly played out in front. The way of the fool, boy, it leads to a bad end, and in their case, it is spectacular how badly they fail along the way. This chapter particularly hones in on that principle, how the way of the fool gets a bad end. And it highlights, it starts kind of as we're going to look big picture, why that is. Why is it that the fool gets bad end? When, when you do foolish things, you get foolish consequences, evil consequences, bad consequences. Why is that? And your starting point for any conversation on this is not the fool. It's with the God who watches over the fool. God is sovereign over all things. And we only see kind of four verses that highlight this fact. In fact, most of this doesn't highlight who God is as much as it's going to highlight the consequences of who he is. But the four things that it highlights are really important. It starts in verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. The Lord turns it wherever he will. I mean, that's a pretty amazing statement that the Lord controls the mind, the heart, the will of the king. We, again, don't live in the world of kings and queens as much unless you're Canadian or English. But even then, it's not the same as it was back then where the kings had all kinds of power. And if they wanted to kill you, they killed you. If they wanted to ruin you, they ruined you. If they wanted to make your life miserable, they could do that, and there was nothing really to stop them. Oh, but the Lord is sovereign over the heart of the king. He's more powerful than even the most powerful of men or women. Any sort of human authority uh, following into the next verse. It even takes it one step further and says, not just human authorities in general. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. God's sovereign over the hearts of mankind. So it's not just an issue of if you are in a position of authority, God controls your ways, your decisions, your ideas. But instead, he's sovereign over even your insides. I mean, you want to talk about a good motivation to not sin. Next time you really want to do something evil or vindictive or whatever, just remember the Lord's watching your mind. I mean, those secret thoughts that you kind of harbor and let stew, He's watching them. And then when you actually go to act on them, both He and the angels are watching you then. I mean, how many apologies do we owe to the angels, the terrible things they've had to see us do? You go to the end of the chapter. Book ends. Verse 30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. <laughs> this is an up the ante, I guess, so to speak. It's increasing uh, in some sense where it started with the heart of the king and then it said to your own internal composition and then now it's amped up to say God's sovereign over your good ideas. You think you have a good solution to any problem? Oh yeah, by the way, God's sovereign over that too. 
He's watching all things. He knows all things. And no amount of human wisdom, no amount of human understanding, no amount of human counsel can avail against him. It doesn't matter how carefully you plan if you want to overthrow God. You can't do it because he's sovereign over your mind. Verse 31 takes it further even and just says, hey, you know what, any sort of kind of physical, uh, emotional, spiritual, any sort of violence you want to do against God is laughable. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. That's significant because uh, through much of Israel's history, they don't have horses in combat. And horses were uh, the uh, highest military kind of superpower. It would be the equivalent today of nuclear bombs. Uh, When you had horses, you could have chariots. Uh, There are only a handful of battles uh, documented in ancient history that the, the army with lots of chariots ever lost. And they were all primarily against Israel because God was fighting for Israel. It was basically, if you had chariots, uh, you won because nothing could stop you. You were too powerful. If you had horses and had them trained and were ready uh, to fight, you won. And here God's saying, you have the horse, you have all of that human power, and it's laughably small. Laughably small before him. Because God is sovereign over all things. He knows the hearts of mankind. He knows the mind of men and women, boys and girls. He knows the extent of our feeble frame because he made it. He's fully aware and sovereign over all things, which as a starting point, If you're on his team, so to speak, is a really good position because it means he knows everything about you. The problem is this chapter is aimed largely at his enemies. It's largely aimed at those that, or will be a bit more generous, not to solely say enemies, but to say those that aren't doing his commands. Those that aren't following his ways. And to say those that are doing it their own way, he knows about that. And this is directed at them because he's going to be victorious over it. And that's where you kind of start to run into a little bit bigger of a problem. Because not only is he aware of all things, not only is he sovereign over all things, but he's righteous in all things. And so he does not tolerate evil. He does not let evil go unpunished. We live in a world that right now is kind of wrestling through what that means. Again, this is one of the most helpful gifts that like the whole Me Too movement, all that is ever given in terms of social media and dealing with uh, any sort of online culture growing up in an age of technology. It's wonderful that we're finally getting to see, oh yeah, by the way, God hates wickedness even in unbelievers. And it does not continue unpunished forever. One of the men who just recently had his downfall in that process, he had his new and greatest movie came out this weekend. And it's shocking that the article I saw said they, they've already figured out how much money has made, how much money his movie made this weekend for an opening, a like triple A big movie opening weekend, $126. Not million dollars, $126. That's like a dozen people went to see it because he's so toxic, because his sins have caught up with him. 
God is righteous. He does not let wickedness prosper forever. In fact, actually here in this chapter, we have a whole bunch of reasons, and I'm going to go through them very quickly, as to what angers him. What provokes his wrath? I'm ripping this list directly out of Lane. Pride. Verses 4 and 24. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked are sin. God hates proud behavior. Hates proud heart. And again, I, I struggle with this because many of us were raised in homes in which this idea was valued highly. Taught that you always ha- have your head high no matter what. If you don't think you belong, you fake it till you make it. Pride pushes you to places you never thought you could go. And that was in some of our homes taught as a positive. Not as a source of God's divine wrath. Fraud in verse 6, getting treasures by a lying tongue. You think, well, I mean, that's obviously not good. Lying to get money is obviously not good. Uh, It's a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Wow. I mean, that's really not good. Violence in verse 7. Devious behavior, verse 8. Perversity, verse 10, bribery, 14, sloth, 25 and 26. So many things in this chapter and in this book. And again, to think about our own hearts in light of the fact that God is sovereign over them. He knows what's going on in the inside. And to think how often have we struggled with pride How often have we had violent words or violent feelings? You do realize it's possible to be a violent person without ever hitting anyone. In fact, actually, a lot of the most violent ones I've known never take a swing. Perversity. Welcome to America. Sloth. I'm sure. I'm sure that applies to some of us. I'm not even going to make a joke about that because that fits us so well so often. It's not, it's too easy to take shots. The interesting thing about this chapter, though, is not just that it, it walks us through a, a, a list of things that God detests. Most of the Proverbs do that. It's some sort of aspect that God detests this sort of behavior. No, this one is so fun is because it begins to highlight some of the mechanisms whereby he punishes people. We've seen his sovereignty that he knows all of the hearts and actions and minds of men. We've seen that he's righteous, that he judges his people. We've seen that Evil behavior earns that wrath. But now in this chapter, we see so many different ways in which he administers his judgment. This is fun. Verses 12 and 22. What do you think he uses? Verses 12 and it's rhetorical. Don't answer. The righteous one observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down to ruin. 
A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. It's really interesting. Sometimes the Lord's judgment, and you're going to find actually in this chapter, a lot of it is talking specifically about the here and now. And in this case, he's administering it through his righteous people. It's being administered through his saints, weirdly enough. Not through them going and blowing up abortion clinics. Never do that. That's evil. Not through them taking justice into their own hands, but wisely and rightly practicing wise and holy behavior which results in the fool's downfall. Again, reference the Me Too movement, but a great illustration of that with the Michigan State. Larry Nasser and the investigations there. The lady who started that and is pushing that so hard is one of our own. Conservative, evangelical, Southern Baptist lady. Her husband's a student at school with me. One of our own. What did she do? Did she go in there, guns blaze? She's a lawyer. She built a case and she took him down. And then had hundreds of others follow afterward. The way of the righteous. Sometimes it's God administering justice through his righteous people. Through their holy behavior, which results in the downfall of the wicked. Other times, it's actually much worse. Rather than the righteous themselves being God's tool of judgment, it's the wicked themselves. And all he does is give them what they want. Verses 17, 20, 25, 26, what is the mechanism whereby God gives justice to the wicked? It's their own wicked desires. 17, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. That person who is so constantly feeding their pleasures, feeding their desires, feeding their bellies. They don't have money. And it's interesting here, it highlights wine and oil. I think probably a better term for it would be sensuality. It's those that value the stimulation of the senses so much that pleasure that they end up in poverty. What's the uh, average American credit card debt right now? Do you remember? I don't know, but it's big. What's that money spent on? Is it not spent on our pleasures? Is it not spent on those things that make us feel good? (coughs) 20 echoes it in a slightly different way. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Twenty-five. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. There's a British saying, I, I love it, and captures this. They just can't be bothered. The sluggard, the lazy one, just can't be bothered to work. It's just too hard. It's just too much. And so what does the Lord use to destroy the lazy? He lets them. 
He lets them be lazy. He lets them be the sluggard. He lets them not be bothered. And that's to their own destruction. 26, this sluggard all day long, he craves and he craves, but he doesn't ever get it. But the righteous gives and does not hold back again this idea that it's his own pleasures and desires that are ruining him. Third, and the Lord uses relationships as part of his temporal judgment on the wicked. This is verses 9 and 19, which I knew would get a couple of chuckles but they, because they are amusing. It's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Put that in southern illustration. It's better to have half the screened porch than to actually be in the home with a quarrelsome wife. And while I I do believe there's certainly a point that is to be made here specifically and particularly for women, that's not the way actually I'd like to uh, focus in on. To think about God's judgment being so bad that your behavior is so wicked that the people that love you most are like, yeah, I'd rather be miserable than be with you. I'd rather be miserable than I have to share space with you, than to share life with you, than to share my soul with you. I would rather live, verse 19, in a desert. I mean, that's bad, folks. When your own behavior is so problematic that the Lord's judgment upon you is such, like, look, you're just so miserable. You know what's going to happen? Your people are going to leave you. You're such a pain in the neck that they're like, you're not worth it. I'm out. I think most of us have probably been around the block enough times to have watched that happen sometime. Where somebody that we knew or that we loved or that we cared for was so difficult that they got cut off. And if you don't remember watching it, you might have been the person being cut off. Verses 7 and 28, he just lets their own wickedness come to its natural end. Verse 7, the violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what's just. They, they do violence and violence breeds violence and what happens to them, they arrive at violent ends because that's what they practice. 28, a false witness will perish. Why? Because they're lying. It's going to catch up with them eventually. But the one who tells the truth will endure. Verse 15, human justice itself is used. When justice is done, it's a joy to the righteous, but it's a terror to evildoers. If any of you went through a season in your life where you were a particularly illegal driver... You remember that feeling when you saw the police? Doesn't matter which way they were going. If they were in the gas station, you know, getting beverages, you pass a cop and your stomach drops. That's what that's talking about. Justice is a terror to the evildoers. And I'm picking something small and insignificant like speeding. And I think the one that's probably the most devastating to me. 
when you're looking at the list is one of the ways, the last one that I want to talk about, one of the ways the Lord uses to, to bring judgment, temporary, temporal now judgment upon the wicked, is he uses their own wisdom. Verses 5 and 16. The plans of the diligent surely lead to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. It's their own planning that's the problem. It's their own mind. It's their own desires. It's their own path that they're choosing. That's what the Lord uses to destroy them. Verse 16, the one who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. If you remember your Pilgrim's Progress, there's the great illustration about two-thirds of the way through the story where Christian is traveling on the path of life and he gets a little bit off. He sees an easier path that runs parallel to it. So he hops a fence and he walks the parallel path. But what he doesn't realize is that he quickly gets steered off into the giant's castle and he gets captured by giant despair and he's almost killed out of depression, sorrow, and despair. Amazing portrait by Bunyan, a man who did struggle with tremendous amounts of depression. But rather than staying on the way of life, Christian hops over on one that he thinks goes parallel, and what he finds out later is it doesn't. It's his own desire, it's his own plan, it's his own wisdom that is the issue. If you like spy movies or spy novels or mystery movies or novels of any kind, it's that same kind of moment where the double agent gets played. Where they think they've been helping the good guys all along. They've been sacrificing. They've been risking their life. They've been laboring all of these actions to think that they're helping this cause only to find out that their planning has been the problem. They don't even need to be betrayed because they themselves were the betrayer by accident. It's the story of the gas station. The young lady who, man, it's a good idea. Where are you going to hide from the cops in a gas station? There's not a whole lot of places. I'll throw the bag up in the ceiling and I'll climb up there after it. And what does her plan end up getting her? A cracked tailbone, a bit of whiplash, and felony. You see, the reason why that last one bothers me the most, though, is because it, it's the one that affects our judgment. It's the one that says the real problem is that you can't see straight. The problem is that you can't think clearly. The problem is that you can't depend on your own senses. I worked in a mental hospital for a year and a half in between college and grad school uh, and got to deal with a lot of folks, and I learned a lot. It was very wonderful. It prepared me for pastoral ministry in far more ways than I thought it would. (laughs) Thank you for catching the joke on that one. That was very subtle. I'm glad you caught it. But certainly the saddest cases in there were not the ones who were the raging drunks for 40 years. It wasn't the folks who did drugs and it fried their brains. It was the people who knew 
that they were crazy. And it was their senses that had betrayed them. I remember one night watching a guy, he had actually, I was watching the news, I never watched the news back then, I don't now, um, but there was a guy who had been arrested in East Charlotte, he had been on top of a, a police car uh, with some sort of weapon trying to assault the police, uh, trying to get ready for the aliens to come get him. And uh, I saw him on the news that night and saw him at work the next morning. I was like, hey buddy, I saw you on the, <laughs> saw you on the evening news. And he was like, I know, it wasn't good, was it? I'm like, no, it really wasn't. <laughs> and the worst part for him was that he knew but the thing was is that he still saw it, and he still felt it, and he still heard it. And the problem was that his own senses betrayed him. The voices in his head, the judgment, the, even the eyes. And you feel bad for that guy because he was getting harsh and harsh and harsh and harsh and harsher judgment. And he was going to jail as soon as he got out of where we were because his own judgment was compromised. And you see, that's actually the scariest of it all, because as we sit here, there is a great reality that some of us might have compromised judgment and not be aware of it. My college pastor preached at General Assembly this summer. When he was young, he had his hands crushed in a steel press. Immediately after he got married, he spent his first year of marriage in traction like this with his wife caring for everything. Uh, I, I lived with his sons in college and uh, remember them telling stories of how he would pass plates at the meals and it would still be 300 degrees and he wouldn't know it. How he would pull pans out of the oven and hand them to the children having no idea the oven was on. But in his sermon at GA, he said, you know, the worst part about being numb is that you don't know that you're numb. You don't know that you're compromised. You don't know that you can't feel. And there's a great danger here that our hearts do the same thing, that our judgment is compromised, that we're thinking our own thoughts, going our own ways, not listening to the word of the Lord, that we're listening to our own passions, listening to our own pleasures, listening to our own goals, and we're not even aware. And see, friends, the problem is, is that this chapter so far has largely been talking about judgments now. It's talking about falling out of the ceiling of a gas station, getting tased and arrested by the police after you've assaulted them. It's talking about standing on the top of a police car and waiting for the aliens to come and get you. I mean, that's a bit extreme, but... It's talking about how we handle social media. It's talking about everything in the here and now, but it's hinting at a greater danger in the life to come. That God gives judgment now. The fool finds they're in now. Sin comes to its end now because it's showing that it will come in the end. That no sin goes unpunished. It was actually a foundational assumption in many of the original folks who started doing capital punishment and having the appeals process be so comprehensive in our government is to say, you know, there are going to be some times where we actually do miss and guilty people get off in this life, but they won't in the life to come.
And the chapter actually gives us the way out. Verse 21. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. This is actually the way out of the labyrinth. It's the way out of the maze. It's the way how to get out of this cycle of judgment to pursue righteousness and kindness. But if you're paying careful attention, you've already recognized the problem. How can I pursue righteousness and kindness if I can't even trust my own judgment to know what they are? You see, that's actually the heart of the problem. Proverbs has said it in a previous chapter a slightly different way. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And this is why for God's people it is so important that we highlight in Presbyterian churches the ministry of the Spirit. Because as we are saints, if you have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have confessed your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If your only hope is in His perfect obedience, He sends His Spirit, and part of the Spirit's work in you is to accomplish this verse. It's to create that pursuit, because you don't have it by yourself. It's to create the proper understanding of righteousness, because you don't have that in yourself. Again, look at what righteousness is defined at in our current world. In one of the states in this great union, we had a baker just get off from the Supreme Court for refusing to bake a cake about one thing, and he's going back to a lawsuit because he's refused to bake another cake. That's pink on the inside and blue on the out. You can do the math on what that one is. The Spirit is the one who teaches us what righteousness is. The Spirit is the one who accomplishes kindness in us. And it's through the Word of God being applied to the people of God. And in doing so, we will find life and righteousness and honor. And it will happen in some form in this life, but it will happen ultimately in the life to come. And friends, I will say one more thing. There is a particularly grave danger, and I would say this is true to all humans, but it is particularly true in the South, for us to attempt to reduce 21 to something that we can do in our own ability. To think whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. That's the way out of judgment. That's the path out of God's temporal judgment. That's the path out of God's eternal judgment. And I can do that. And I will share with you, that's one of the great lies of the devil. You can do that with the Spirit of God living in you. But in your own abilities... In your own thoughts, in your own strength, you will never accomplish it. But in Christ, 
filled with the Spirit, you will be transformed. So that, spiritually speaking, we don't end up on those silly, silly videos showing instant karma where the fool arrives at judgment. Let's pray. Lord God, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for the times in which we have even attempted to trust in our own thoughts as opposed to yours. Lord, we thank you for the words of life, your scriptures, and we ask that we would understand them in the spirit. For Christ's sake, amen.